Amen. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. We love you. You are good. We are here to worship you. And Jesus, I pray that this morning um, that your Holy Spirit would please fill each one of us. And I pray, Father, that you would just put a new song in our heart. The beginning of this new year, I pray that you would help us to worship you like never before. I pray that you would give us the ability to forget about self, to forget about the cares of this world. Um, I pray that, Lord, we would grow in our worship and adoration of you in this upcoming year. You are always more than enough. You're always good. You are our more. You are, you're perfect all the time. Never changes. So, Lord, help us to stop running after other things that don't satisfy and help us to come to you again and again. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for these moments that we get together. In Christ's name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Happy New Year. How we doing? Good? Excited? Yeah. So, so excited. We're such a rowdy bunch here at Mercy Hill. You know. <laughs> Watch out. Um. We are going through the book of Romans this year. So for those of you um, that have been around for a while, you know this. For others of you that have come in the last couple of years, you might not, is that um, when we started off uh, Mercy Hill, the first thing we did week one, the first week we had a Sunday morning worship service, was I, I just started with verse one in the book of Philippians. And for the first several years, we would just preach verse by verse through, book of the Bible, through books of the Bible, preached through Philippians, we went through Daniel, we did a little bit in Hebrews, we did the book of Exodus, we did two years verse by verse through the book of Luke, <laughs> longest sermon series ever. Um, but, uh, and then over the last couple of years, we just felt like um, that it would be good for all of us to do a Bible reading plan. So I think it's been three years ago now we did a Bible reading plan. First year was through the New Testament, one chapter a day, five days a week, and then I would just pull something out of there, out of one of those chapters. And then um, we did something more with both Old and New Testament last year. And of course, we did the same, th the same type of thing this year. As Conrad mentioned in the opening, we do still have Bible reading plans out there. It's a, just one chapter a day. Um, and it's going to take you kind of chronologically through the Bible. I would really encourage you to do that. You need to be in the Word more than just on Sunday mornings. But for Sunday mornings here in 2023, we felt like uh, we needed to get back to just slowing down a little bit and going uh, through a book of the Bible. And we are going to go through the book of Romans. If the uh, 66 books of the Bible would be compared to the Himalayas, then Romans is probably considered by most to be Mount Everest. Um, in nowhere else in the Bible is more of a complete, uh, comprehensive doctrine of salvation and of God and of man laid out in an orderly fashion than Paul does in this book. Um, J.I. Packer says, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what might happen. Martin Luther said of the book of Romans, he said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it is truly the purest gospel. 
It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better that it tastes. Um, the book of Romans throughout history has, a, has affected many uh, great men of God. It is, like I said before, it's kind of like the Mount Everest of Scripture. Um, to switch the analogy a little bit, it's also like a Sherman tank. Um, the other day, I, couldn't, I woke up at 2 in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. And so I pulled up YouTube and I was watching some sort of random World War II documentary on YouTube. And it's um, what you do at two in the morning when you can't sleep. I thought it would help me. It thought, I thought it would help put me back to sleep, but it didn't. I watched the whole thing. It was like an hour and a half. Um, but you know these these, these tanks, uh, and you know getting them over there and D Day and all that and all that stuff, and then they just slowly plot along. And I, folks, I want to tell you something that like over the course of the next year. Um, I want to be really clear. We're going to go through the book of Romans, Lord willing, verse by verse. But you've you got to understand this. You do not conquer or exhaust the book of Romans. It will conquer you. And it will exhaust us. Um, it's like a tank that just rolls along. We will fire at times, each one of us, our little BB gun objections at it. I'm not sure I agree with that. That offends me. That's confusing. Doesn't matter. It will roll on, as it has for the past 2,000 years, uh, declaring the absolute sovereignty of God and all of his grace, and it will stand. Um, I, I told, I think it was back in July, um, I'm always kind of thinking about what's next and especially for us as a church and especially for what we do here on Sunday mornings is this is kind of my primary role um, as a teaching pastor at Mercy Hill and it was kind of I think it was back in about July where I really uh, began to feel like Romans is what we need to do in 2023 and I um, I told the interns that I you know we've been a church plant for almost nine years March will be nine years and uh I told him, I said, I want us to stop thinking about ourselves like a church plant. And I want us to start thinking about ourselves like an oak tree. Um, and hear me in this. What I'm not saying is that um, we somehow uh, cultivate some sort of weird pride in us. Where it's like, we're going through the book of Romans verse by verse. We're like an oak tree. No, 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 no. You're, if you think you're an oak tree, you're not an oak tree. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay, But I do want us to put our roots down deep. I want us to grow tall. I want us to grow strong. I want us to be mature. I don't want us to fall over in the midst of a storm, in the midst of high winds. And the degree to which we will stand tall and steadfast and be mature and be fruitful is the degree to which we will put down deep roots into God's word. Are you with me? And w guys, we live in a culture that is microwavable. You know, uh, speaking of YouTube, it's not just YouTube, right? It's like YouTube shorts now. 
right? What is this, like 17 seconds or something? Or is that TikTok? I don't know. I'm not on any social media. My boys tell me all the time that I'm old and I should just not wander into those illustrations. But every, everything's short, you know? Like little snippets. And I just want to say up front, like I'm, I don't know, warning you, I guess, or just telling you this is what we're doing. Um, so you're not spread. That's not what Romans is. You, you, don't, you don't come to Romans to get some little YouTube shorts, some little 17-second TikTok videos. Um, you, we need to sink our roots down deep. Um, and again, not that we conquer it, but allow it to conquer us. So today... Again, Lord willing, in 2023, this is primarily where we're going to be. Today we will be in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and go there. (coughs) The text um, outlines fairly neatly into three sections. The man, the message, and the mission. The man, the message, and the mission. Or to say it another way, Paul in this introduction uh, to this book, again, this is a letter Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome. He has never been to Rome, but he wants to get to Rome. Uh, We'll talk more about this as as we go along uh, over the course of the next year, but Romans is actually a missionary support letter. Paul is writing to to the church in Rome because he wants to come to them, then he wants to get funding from them to send him on to Spain to take the gospel again into unreached lands to where the gospel has never been. And so in order for them to get to know him, he comprehensively lays out his understanding of the gospel with the authority of an apostle. But in these first couple verses, what we have is him just simply explaining a little bit about who he is, what he has to say, and what he's been called to do. So again, the man, the message, the mission, or to put it another way, who he is, what he has to say, and what he is called to do. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the very first word, Paul. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Um, You know who Paul was? So Paul, his real name was Saul, okay? Uh, Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was actually his Roman name. So Paul had dual citizenship. Paul was a very unique character. He grew up as a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself uh, in the book of Philippians. He was a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He was raised to be a religious zealot. He was He was passionate about the law of God, and yet you come to Acts chapter 9, and you actually find him working against the purposes of God. And we don't have time to sit here for very long, but uh, it is a clarion call to be warned about the dangers of man-made religion and thinking that we can somehow do something to appease God and not understanding that it's all about Jesus Christ and his grace that is found in him. And so Paul finds himself actually persecuting the church uh, that Jesus died to purchase. And in Acts chapter 9, it says, but Saul, because again, that was his Jewish name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for the synagogues of Damascus so that, he found, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he was persecuting the church, but this is Jesus speaking. Jesus identifies with his church because we are his body, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And one of the most tragic, I think it's one of the most tragic lines in all of scriptures, because here you have this religious, zealous man who thought that he was doing something good for God, Again, he, again, I said earlier, take, you know, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You have this man who, who literally would, would have had the, at least the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, yet he did not know Jesus. 
Because when Jesus says to him there, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The first words out of Saul's mouth are this. He says, who are you, Lord? Is that not tragic? And if it can happen to Saul, I'm afraid that it could happen to someone here. That it could happen to us. I'm afraid that it can happen to us here in, you know, Holmes County where, where everybody goes to church and everybody grows up in church. And hey, do you know Jesus? Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Of course I know Jesus. Do you? Because Saul thought he knew God, but he didn't. And it's entirely possible to sit under preaching for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and not know Jesus. That is absolutely a possibility. I'll fight you on that one. Because it's not just about mental assent, it's not just about information, it is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And all of your church going and all of your religious duties and all, you know, you grew up, did anybody grow up with Hawana? Anybody? Hawana, you know, you got the badges and you got the, you know, the stuff, you're looking like General Patton, you know, with the, you know, all, all that. It's possible to have all that. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you need to know Jesus. And Paul didn't know him, and Jesus responds. He said, I am Jesus who you, whom you are persecuting. And so here's this man that God has called, and again, Paul's going to go on here and describe himself. Again, how, would you, how do you describe yourself to a new group of people that you don't know very well or that you've never met? How would you describe yourself? Paul said, here's how Paul describes himself. He says, a servant, but I'm telling you, that's the, it's just the... It's the American English translation PG version. It is the Greek word doulos. It is absolutely 100% the word slave. And slave means what you think it means. It means to be owned by another. That's what it means. And Paul describes himself to this group of people, the first thing out of his, his mouth here, so to speak. He says, I'm Paul. I'm a slave. But not just a slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. Amen? Changes everything. If you want to know freedom, I'm telling you there's only one place. It's in being a slave of Jesus Christ. It's in belonging to him. This Greek word uh, doulos, as I said, it's translated servant, but absolutely means slave. Um, it's not just a little footnote in the New Testament. In fact, it is one of the, if not the primary word that is used to describe our relationship to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It occurs at least 130 times in various forms. That we are slaves of Jesus Christ. This is um, part of Paul's identity. Now, now hear me, hear me, because I know where your minds are probably going, and I affirm, are we children? Yes. Are we sons? Yes. Are we daughters? Yes. Are we co-heirs with Christ? Absolutely. Are we his bride? Are we his body? Are we his family? Are we, are we his friends? Yes, 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 and yes, but we are also slaves. And just like the truth of the gospel and our salvation is multifaceted, meaning that, yes, we're in one sense, the Bible describes our salvation as being born again. We are also, it also describes it as us being adopted into his family. We're both redeemed and we're reconciled, we're justified, we're sanctified, we're glorified. There's all these different aspects and facets of our salvation in the same way our identity is multifaceted in Christ. And you don't get to pick and choose which ones you want. We don't get to pick and choose. Well, I, I like the child part. <laughs> I like that I can call him daddy. 
True. He is our heavenly father. Um, and he wants us to approach him as children. But we're also slaves. And we, we were just talking about this in the um, prayer room this morning. Uh, after prayer, uh, just some kind of random discussion that was happening. We, we love our autonomy, do we not? Oh, come on, somebody. We love it. We love it. If you want to accept Jesus into your life, you're going to have to let go of that autonomy. Is anybody going to say amen? Yeah. We were purchased with his precious blood. Because see, we, we weren't autonomous to begin with. We were already slaves, but we were slaves to sin. And sin and Satan and death, they're a cruel master. But Jesus came and he purchased us, purchased us, not just from those things, but from the wrath of God, the punishment that we justly deserved with his precious blood. And Paul says here, I want to let everybody know right from the outset who I am. My name's Paul. Okay, enough of that. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This has so many implications. I, man, this is, you guys good with being here till like two o'clock today? Okay, we're, we're two words in. It's, yeah, we'll, we'll just keep going. Um, <laughs> you got the partying done last night, right? It was, that was all good. Um, like there's so many implications of this. Like you guys, you understand, like we don't, <laughs> it's funny the way we talk sometimes and I'm not trying to just poke to play semantic games. I've said the same thing. But it's funny how we talk about like volunteering our time for Jesus, right? Oh, I'm gonna volunteer a little bit. I'm kind of busy, but I think I can fit it into my schedule. I got a half hour here on Thursdays at, from 3.30 to 4. You don't understand what it means to be a slave. He, he owns you. Your life is his. Your time is his. Your money is his. Your thoughts are to be his. Your actions are to be his. Your words are to be his. You belong to him. And so we don't volunteer for him. Paul goes on here. He says, I'm Paul, I'm, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it good news. And he says, I'm called. God is the one doing the calling. God, God is, would be the one doing the action there, or Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. You don't choose to be an apostle for yourself. Apostle literally means sent one. Uh, Paul here, it's not just in the general sense of, of sent one. If you trace the term apostle, apostle is, is a Greek-rooted uh, word, and we've just kind of carried it over to English um, because there's nothing necessarily apples to apples. When the Greek was translated into the Latin is the word missio, which is where we get the word missionary. Um, and then we've just kept the word apostle in the New Testament. It's basically the idea of a missionary. However, there's the calling of a missionary. So in a, in a lower case A sense, there's still apostles today, meaning just missionaries, ones who are sent to advance the mission and to build the church, to plant churches, which I would argue is what missions is ultimately all about. But Paul here is not just a lowercase a apostle. He is a capital A apostle. He holds the office of apostle, okay? Um, the office of apostle was reserved for the 12 that Jesus is called uh, um, in the Gospels that you read about. Judas, of course, betrayed him. 
and was destroyed. Um, and then later on, and Paul describes it this way, he describes himself as one that was abnormally born, but the, Jesus Christ appears to him, and we read that briefly in Acts chapter 9, he appears to him, he speaks to him, he takes him out into Arabia uh, for, for several years, and God um, teaches him there, or Jesus teaches him there directly. Okay, the office of apostle does not exist anymore today. And I say this just in passing, I think we've talked about this before for those of you that attend Mercy Hill regularly, but it, whenever somebody's going around like saying, like calling themselves Mr. Apostle, just run. It's weird. It's not like, it's, it's just, no. That's, not, that's not, not, not a thing. The office of apostle no longer exists. And sometimes they try to claim this sort of apostolic authority like God's spoken to them or whatever. And so you need to listen to their teaching and submit to their authority. It's a bunch of garbage, okay? We get the authority from the word of God that was primarily written, most of the New Testament exclusively by apostles, not, not entirely, but mostly. Um, and so we have the authority of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles in this book. Again, primarily in the New Testament. Paul was called to be an apostle. You don't make yourself one. But Jesus called him to be this. He says he was called, and then secondly, also he was set apart. So he's a slave, he's called to be an apostle, and he's set apart. <coughs> the idea of being set apart here... Again, it also plays off this idea of being a servant or a slave. Uh, it's the Greek word aphorezo. It, it, means, to, it means to mark off, uh, to be set aside. And it's the idea of being defined or determined. Okay? And again, because um, Jesus uh, is the one that owns us, we are slaves to him. But he's a good master. He's a good king. He's a good Lord. He gets to define and determine who we are and what our lives look like. Um, and Paul, uh, because of this calling, um, did not get a bunch of accolades. It didn't work out well for him financially. Here's kind of how he sums up his apostleship in 2 Corinthians. Um, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman because he's being sarcastic here in some ways. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Now, this is not sarcastic. I probably shouldn't have said that, but this is literal. This happened to him. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these things, there's the daily pressure on me of all my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Okay, that was kind of the job description of an, of an apostle. In fact, later on in Acts chapter 9, from the passage I read earlier, when Jesus calls him, he, he goes and tells Ananias to go and pray for him. And Ananias says, Lord, I'm not doing that. Uh, he, he's, you know, arresting people. He's going to arrest me. And Jesus says to Ananias, he goes, no, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. So here's this man, a slave, an apostle, and set apart, set apart for what? The gospel. So again, the man, the message. What was he about? Let's talk about what he was about, this gospel. What he had to say. End of verse one, he set apart for the gospel of God. Now Paul is going to give here, through the end of verse one, the very end of verse one, and into verse four, uh, through the end of verse four, he's going to give a synopsis, a very brief synopsis, of the entire gospel. Now, the entire book of Romans is a more comprehensive um, covering of 
the gospel, but it's, you know, it's kind of like if I asked you what you did on vacation, you know, uh, over the last couple weeks, or if, you know, you were off school or, or work or whatever for Christmas vacation. Uh, I, you know, here he's not sitting us down, and he's going to do this as he goes through the book and just taking us through every day and showing us all the pictures and all the presents and all those things, but he's just giving a brief synopsis of how, um, of what the gospel is, of what this message is that he has to share. And the first thing we see here is that it is God's gospel. So he says, end of verse one, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, but, but the, the wording there in the Greek, it's more, the emphasis is on whose the gospel is. So it's more literally like for God's gospel um, would be a tad more accurate. It's God's gospel. It belongs to him. This gospel, and the gospel means good news, but it is a, it's a message. There is a lifestyle and there are things that we do in light of this message, but the gospel itself is a message. It is something that we share. It's something that we say with our mouths. It is good news that we have to declare. And this good news message is from God. It is God's good news. Now what does he say about it? Verse 2 couple things. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now here's the point of this. What he's saying is this is, he, what Paul's saying is this is not something that I made up. This is not something new. It was promised beforehand through God's prophets. God has always had his people all throughout time. He's always had a remnant and he's always had people that he's called to proclaim the good news. Okay? One of the things our culture loves is we love to discuss everything. Well, you got your truth and I got my truth and you get, they've got their truth. and Well, that's good for them. That's true for them. But this is true for me. Blah, 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 blah. That's not truth. Truth is truth. Truth is truth. And throughout history, God has had his people standing up. They're called prophets here. Paul is an, is an apostle. And throughout history, he's, God has always had his people that have stood up and said, no, what you say isn't true. No, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. Here's what God says is true, and this is what's true. And this is how the people of God, this is what the people of God are to be founded upon, is this gospel message. Not everything is a discussion. We can have discussions. We can have dialogue. There's nothing wrong with that. But truth is truth is truth is truth, and truth comes from God. That's it. And so this message was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not making anything up here. And this idea of, of, being, of being promised, Paul wants us to feel the weight um, and the encouragement and the privilege of, of how we should receive this good news. You know, um, that idea of, of, of promise, you know, for most kids... Um, Unless they're really bad, uh, they maybe didn't get a Christmas present on on Christmas morning, or they, or they did get a Christmas present, I should say, on on Christmas morning. And there's this sense of anticipation and hope and excitement, and of waking parents up earlier than they want to wake up. Why? Because it's been promised to them that this was coming, and this is the idea here of what Paul's saying: is like, this has been promised. Throughout all ages from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, that theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium, it's the first preaching of the gospel in kind of this, this seed form. But Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, um, after the fall, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is like the first promise of scripture. 
concerning the gospel that someone was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Who is it going to be? And so all throughout the Bible, and over the last couple months, being in the book of Judges and some different places as a church, as we've been, um, what we're preaching through, you know, this past fall, we've looked at some of this, like this, this, this meta-narrative, this storyline of scripture that it started back in Genesis 3. Who's going to come crush the, the, the head of the serpent, who is this offspring, the seed going to be? Then you see this seed idea in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, that he's going to give the land to this offspring. Later on uh, with David, that he's going to raise up an offspring and he's going to, of David and he's going to establish his throne forever. We saw it, um, uh, Joshua meets this character called the angel of the Lord. Gideon meets this character called the angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah f- uh, 53. He's the son of man in Daniel chapter chapter 7, this one who's going to finally come and destroy Satan's sin and death. And again, his name is Jesus. And to make this clear here, look again at the text there at the beginning of verse 3. He says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. And then this little interrupter in verse 2, which he promised before and through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. That it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, folks. We've got to get this, because let me tell you something. Over the course of the next year, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the universal sinfulness and total inability of man when it comes to pleasing God. We're going to talk about justification and sanctification and glorification and redemption and reconciliation and propitiation and adoption and regeneration. We're going to talk about, what uh, in Romans chapter 8, what theologians refer to as the golden chain of redemption. We're going to talk about foreknowledge and election and predestination. We're going to talk about the future role of Israel in God's redemptive plan. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts and the role of government. We're even going to talk about whether or not you're allowed to play softball on Sunday afternoons. But in the midst of all that, and that's not an exhaustive list, those are just some of the things that the book of Romans is going to call us to talk about. But in the midst of all of that, folks, we got to get this, that it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We don't worship doctrine. Doctrine is fuel in the furnace of our soul that causes us to burn with blazing passion to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what doctrine does. When we understand all that he's done and all that he will do and all that his blood purchased for us, it causes us to worship, but it's all about him. And so again, there's this, there's just a, there's a, there's a caution here. There's a cautionary shadow here, I, I think, in this text to remind us from the beginning that as we go th- through this book as a church over the next year, that we don't become like the Apostle Paul who was at one time a Pharisee. And had all the doctrines neat and tidy, but he was not a worshiper of Jesus Christ. It's about worshiping, worshiping him. Um, and so he continues on here about this message, like the content of the message. Here's how he sums it up. He says concerning his son, Jesus. Two things. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. And we went over this this past summer in our doctrinal series, but Jesus was truly God and truly man. He was the legal, rightful heir to the throne of David. We looked at that a couple weeks ago in Matthew's genealogy. He's the son of David according to the flesh, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he was declared to be the son of God in power. And he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, he did not become the son of God. Okay, 
He has always been the Son of God from all of eternity past. So again, even here in the introduction, Paul is just throwing out some of the um, deepest theological uh, truth that you can throw out there. Um, uh, Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. Fun word, impress your friends with it, I guess, I don't know. Um, That he's truly God and truly man. He wasn't 50-50, but he's truly God and he's truly man. Um, 100% both ways. And when it says here that he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, you have to understand that Jesus was always the Son, and when he came, uh, like, some people say that Jesus never declared himself to be the Son of God or God in the flesh, but that other people just said that about him. That is absolutely not true. In the Gospel of John, they tried to stone him because he said he was God. Yeah, so it, it's like um, he absolutely declared, was, or declared himself to be the Son of God, but they did not believe him. And so when he says here about the resurrection from the dead, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection um, from the dead, um, it's not that he became the Son of God, but what, what he's saying is that, <coughs> Paul was saying that um, Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead was the powerful declaration by God the Father himself, that Jesus is indeed the only begotten Son, and that he is indeed very God of very God, and that everyone who does not believe this is indeed wrong. Right? Because uh, he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. Even his own disciples didn't have a grid for this. They They didn't understand. Like They heard what he was saying, but they didn't fully understand how that could be true. Here's how it's true. Because it was impossible for the grave to keep its hold on him, the Bible says. Because he lived a perfect, holy life. And this is where, uh, what Paul was alluding to here in the middle of verse 4 when he says, according to the spirit of holiness. If Jesus Christ had sinned at all, in word or action or thought or deed, his sacrifice for our sins would not have been acceptable to the Father. But, because he was raised from the dead, it is proof that his sacrifice was acceptable. And here's the thing, like, oh, Eric, I mean, you really believe he was raised from the dead? Prove it. Prove that he wasn't. Prove that he wasn't raised from the dead. Again, you'll hear me, I get on this little tangent every now and then, but I don't, so for those of you that have heard me say something like similar to this before, I, I, but I, don't, I just don't think I can say it enough. Folks, this isn't a fairy tale. You understand? Right. 2,000 years ago, in real-time space history, Jesus Christ, the God-man, was born of a virgin in the land in the Middle East that we know as Israel. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. He really lived a sinless, perfect life before the Father. He did all sorts of miracles. He walked on water. It's all true. And then he died willingly, no one taking his life from him. But yet at the hands of sinful men, he lays down his life, and on the third day, he takes it back up by the power of God. And for 2,000 years, no one has ever been able to disprove that that hasn't happened. So don't let anybody, like, bully you or push you around, oh, you believe in that that Jesus stuff, just a fairy tale. No, it's not. No, it's not. And in fact, even, um, it, it's, well, I shouldn't go to, well, I'll, 
I won't, I won't name names, but it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy sometimes listening. There's a few secular scholars out there that go, yeah, Jesus was definitely a real man. He definitely caused a stir. I mean, he was doing something. You know, they're not sure on the miracles. And then they'll say, yeah, and he, and he really died. And then they'll say, and then something happened. Yeah, he was raised from the dead. <laughs> That's what happened. And for those of us that are sitting here this morning, and just a little bit ago, we're singing praises to him. That resurrection life that brought him out of the grave is exactly what has come into our hearts that causes us to sing. Because it's true. It's not a fairy tale. And when you understand what Jesus has done and who he is, the only right response is to do what Paul does in verse 4 and call him Lord. And again, you'll see this go back in the connection of thought between this and Paul calling himself a slave. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is he your Lord? That's the question. And then he says, through whom, and he transitions here. Again, we talk about the man, the message, and here the mission. What Paul is all about, what he's trying to do, why he's been set apart for this gospel, why he was called to be an apostle, why he considers himself a slave, um, what that looks like. Transitions here in verse 5 to, to the mission. What has he been called to do? The mission, he says, verse 5, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul picks up this idea here again of his apostleship. He adds this little phrase here that I like at the beginning of verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace. So you've probably heard me say this before, but don't, don't ever lose this, folks. And again, going back to that idea of what I said earlier about like we don't volunteer for him. <laughs> He's our Lord, but we, we are saved by grace and we serve by grace. Okay? It's all about his grace. Um, and it's a privilege, is the point, to be allowed to serve him, to serve um, in the presence of the king. Um, he says, here, here's the point. He says, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. I want you to, if, you, if you're into underlining, highlighting, whatever, that little phrase, obedience of faith, a very important little phrase. In fact, real big picture, if you zoom out for just a second, I know we're down into the weeds here, going word by word through this passage, but th that little phrase, obedience of faith, actually bookends the entire book of Romans. Paul uses it right here, I believe, very intentionally. Um, he uses it a few other places in his writings. He also uses it at the very end, the second to last verse of the book of Romans. Um, he says in Romans 16, Now to him who is able to strengthen, it, strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, listen, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So he uses it at the beginning and he uses it at the end to bring about the obedience of faith. Now this, there's a lot, like commentators and um, scholars, that there's a lot um, about this phrase, a lot, of, a lot of opinions, because it's somewhat, in, it's left intentionally somewhat ambiguous, 
Okay, so some people are like, well, what does that mean, obedience of faith? Does, like, do we have to obey and believe? That sounds like faith and works. Or, or you know, people say, like, it, does it mean that, uh, you know, our faith produces obedience? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably true. Or, or uh, is it the obedience that consists of faith? Like, faith is our obedience, that, that is how we obey? And so more than one thing is true here, probably uh, taken together. I would say uh, just simply it's a similar thought to, like, what um, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So whatever obedience looks like in the Christian life, and again, we're not afraid of the word obedience, even though we believe it's all, it's all about grace, um, that we're saved by grace and we serve by grace, is that obedience is an outflow of that grace. But what, whatever obedience looks like, here's the point. It starts with faith, always. Here's a, the cheesy little alliterated faith. I want you to, faith goes first, always. Faith goes first. No matter in what you're doing, you have to choose to place your trust in Christ. Because I can tell you, even as a Christian, again, I'm secure in my salvation because of what Jesus did for me. He's the one that holds me. He's going to see me through. But I can't tell you how many times I've done things uh, thinking that I was doing them for him, but I wasn't doing them in faith. And faith is dependence upon him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him because he is going to get the glory, folks. He will not share his glory with another. And what he wants from us is to bring all of our weakness and throw it upon his strength. In fact, I would say it like this. Faith is weakness throwing itself upon omnipotence. Strength is weak, or I'm sorry, faith is weakness throwing itself upon omnipotence. Outward boldness, as Paul had, and we're going to look at this more next week, outward boldness comes from an inward dependence upon the power of Jesus Christ to do what only he can do. And Paul says here in regards to this mission, and I want us to understand that this is what we need to be about as a church as well. Paul is, is an example here for us. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. See, it's about the glory of Christ. It's not about us. He says the same thing at that verse I just read that where he mentions it again at the very end of, of the book of Romans chapter 16, to bring about the obedience of faith. And then what does he say? To the only wise God be glory. That the reason we're to proclaim that people are not just, it's not just a suggestion or it's not just a thought, like they feel like we're to command that everyone everywhere believe in Jesus. And that through the preaching of the gospel, and we'll look more at this next week, it is the power of God unto salvation and it brings dead men to life when that gospel is proclaimed. That there is hope and life in Christ for the sake of his name among all the nations, that God is going to receive all the glory from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Then he says to the Romans, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So here's what, here's what God is doing. Back then and still now, and this is helpful for us because if we can know what God is doing, we know that God never fails, as we sang about earlier. And if we can join him in what he's, in what he's doing, go where he's going, then we will live, as that song saying, as more than conquerors. Because he has an agenda, an agenda, he's the Lord, we're the slave, let's follow him in it. And here's what he's doing. Back then and still now today, all throughout the world, he is calling. He is calling anyone who says, I'm weak. I'm blind. I'm an outcast. I'm lame. I'm dead. I can't do it myself. 
He is calling them to come and to throw themselves upon his strength. That's what faith is. The obedience of faith. It's us throwing our weakness upon his unending power. So that's good news this morning. If you're weak, and if you're willing to admit that you're blind, and if you're willing to admit that you're a leper and you're an outcast and you're lame and you're dead. If not, if you think you're strong, then you can't receive it. This is what um, Jesus said to a group of Pharisees in John chapter 9. Um, he had just healed a blind man and the Religious folks are all bent out of shape about it because he did it on a Sabbath and they're trying to decide whether or not he's allowed to do that. But he'd already done it, so he's allowed to do it. Um, and then, you know, they give this the guy that had been healed a hard time and you know, it's kind of a famous passage. They're like, how'd this happen? The guy's like, I, don't, I, I, I was blind and now I see. He's like, what, what, do, you, what do you want from me? And they're like, well, you're out of here. And they kick him out of their little religious club. And then later on, Jesus says this. He says, for judgment I came into the world. Listen, that those who do not see may see. And end that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, so are, are we also blind? What, you're saying, you're saying we're blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that this gospel and this idea of bringing about obedience of faith and that without faith it's impossible to please and that whatever obedience is, it starts with trusting in him. That means acknowledging something about yourself. That you're weak, you're blind, you're lame, you might be dead, whatever metaphor you want to put on it. But if you put yourself in that category, the good news is, all you have to do is call upon him. That's it. All you have to do is call upon him. Paul had a great burden for men's souls, but the ultimate purpose of his mission was not just the souls of men, but the glory of God. Um, of course, these two things go together because God is glorified in raising to life the deadness of men's souls. Uh, but church, let's make sure that we calibrate our hearts rightly at the beginning of this new year to the end or the purpose um, about which this is all about. And that is, it's, it's not just about um, life improvement or social justice or ease and comfort. It's about the glory of God. That's why we, that's why we preach the gospel. And Jesus has died to bring it about. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. Just a couple of questions, okay, and then some really, and then some really good news. Number one, who are you? What's the word you would use to describe yourself? Paul used the word slave. Slave of Jesus Christ. How do you introduce yourself to people? Um, and again, I'm not so much, the, the application here is not that the next time somebody goes, oh, hey, how are you? What do you do? I'm a slave. Well, you, you can, maybe. Be a good discussion starter. Just make sure you explain that you're a slave of Jesus. Um, 
not opposed to that. But I'm talking about that internal dialogue. Do, do you know, and again, hear me here, this is not a thing where Jesus is lording it over you with a whip. That's what Pharaoh did. Jesus invites you to come sit at his feet as a disciple. Um, who are you? Secondly, what do you have to say? Is it what Paul had to say? Is it about the gospel of his son? Is it about Jesus? Or is it about secondary or tertiary issues, little things that we get on our soapbox about? Is it about politics? Or is it about Jesus? Third, what are you trying to do? What are we trying to do? Do we have the same mission that Paul, that Paul had? These are the questions that the book of Romans is going to invite us into. And lastly, <coughs> I know we're closing here. I'm going to be short, I promise. But we didn't hit verse 7, okay? Because everything we talked about before this in verses 1 through 6 is true, here's now what's true of you, what can be true of you. Paul says to those in Rome who are loved by God, first of all, know this morning you are loved. You're loved. And again, if, you, if you're not sure, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're not sure where you'd spend eternity if you die today, I'm telling you, God loves you and he offers you eternal life through faith in his Son. You are loved by God. You're called to be saints. We're called to be holy. And if that sounds like a burden and not a blessing, then you've not yet tasted the bitterness of sin. Because being called to be a saint and, or a holy one, um, it, it doesn't mean that we walk around with long robes and a cane and a beard and try to act all spiritual. It means that we flee from sin and we run to Jesus. And lastly, there is grace and peace in abundance for you. Paul starts all his letters this, this way and he ends most of them this way too. But he, notice he just says, grace to you and peace. He, he's not... He's not asking God for it. It's not a prayer. It's a declaration. Why, how, how can he say this so boldly, so unashamedly? Why, how can he say this with such confidence? And he can say, grace, peace to you. Why? Because it's been provided in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you, you feel like you're constantly striving, that you, you need some grace in your life, where it's not just about your efforts, it's about acceptance because of the blood of Christ. There is grace for you. If you have no peace, if it's constant anxiety and worry and turmoil in your soul, there is peace for you. It's found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. We love you. We thank you for being good to us. We thank you that your truth is like an anchor for our soul that keeps us from floating off into the nothingness that's offered in the world. Lord, give us minds and hearts that are able to receive all the truth that, according to your will, we will hopefully go through this year in 2023. Pray that it would change us. Pray that you would, that you would Lord. I pray that we would never be aware of it, so that we would not be proud, but I pray that you would make us like oak trees. 
not for our glory, but for yours. That it would be seen that the strength that we have isn't in us. It's because our roots are in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.